0: Well, can anyone believe that we're a week into October? Uh, We are in the final quarter of 2017, which has just flown by, and so has our series in Ephesians. In fact, we're getting into the second half of the book today. Now, truthfully, um, I have to admit, October is one of my favorite months for a couple reasons. Uh, First, it means that Thanksgiving is right around the corner. So, turkey, stuffing, cranberry sauce, pumpkin pie are just a hop, skip, and a jump away. And so after all that good eating at Thanksgiving and Christmas time, I'm going to have to make a New Year's resolution to eat just a bit healthier and maybe you will too. Um, if you are a lady here this morning, we have an exciting event that's coming up this Friday to help us learn what it means to live a healthier lifestyle. The Women's Ministry is going to be kicking off a series on healthier women and our own Luana Palazzolo, who is a uh, nutritional therapy practitioner. We'll give the ladies some guilt-free treat uh, ideas for guilt-free treats and desserts. So you don't want to miss this. It's this coming Friday, 7 p.m., over in the uh, Youth and Family Building. If you have any questions, uh, you can email Jen Dowden, and the details about that are in the bulletin. Uh, Perhaps maybe we even should consider changing the topic for the men's breakfast, Scott. I don't know where you went, but um, just a thought. Now, the second reason I love October is because this is when the leaves start to change and fall foliage trips are all the rage. Am I the only one who loves the changing of the colors? Probably not, right? The entire Northeast transforms into a gorgeous sea of reds, oranges, and yellows, wonderfully mixed in a magnificent tapestry. There is truly nothing like it in other parts of the country. Now, some of you might know that I spent some time living in Colorado for a number of years, and while there are many beautiful aspects of that state, not the least of which is the multitude of towering mountains, they didn't have the plethora of colors you find in the Northeast. And so it was a bit disappointing to me. However, while I lived there, my friends tried to console me in my loss of fall colors by saying I needed to go out and check out the aspen trees. Every year around this time, somewhere to the Northeast, people would drive up to the mountains to see the aspens. And so I went And I have to admit, I was disappointed again. Yes, the aspens did change colors, but only to yellow. They are a singularly focused tree. So would you mind switching the uh, monitor so I can see what slides behind me? Thanks. Um, However, while I was a little disappointed at the aspens' lack of diversity, they're still a beautiful tree, and I learned to appreciate them for other qualities. The truth is, aspens are wonderful trees. And they're, only out, they're not only outwardly beautiful, but they offer qualities that instruct us to look beyond that beauty. In fact, aspens offer us an illustration on what an effective community should be like. Did you know that there is rarely just one aspen tree, ever? By their nature, aspens are not a solitary tree. Their roots spread below the earth's surface and form a, a life of a group together. Aspens literally grow as a community Their root system is interconnected, where they share nutrients and resources. They support one another. And so beneath the surface, aspens are survivors. Amazingly, an aspen's roots can remain dormant for years, but at the right time, they jump to life and regenerate as a community. Now, beyond their support for each other, they serve others. Animals gain nourishment in the winter months from aspen's trunks. Pains can be soothed with their medicinal aspirin-like value, and people can even gain protection from the sun and find relief from a sunburn by rubbing on the aspen's bark in their skin. I tried that a couple times. Now, aspen trees provide a calming beauty while healing cuts and pains and restoring others outside their bonded community. Now, tell me what maple tree can do that. (laughs) So, after learning all that, I felt like a fool for shortchanging the aspen trees, Sure, they only turn yellow, but they can actually heal my sunburn. So cool. Now, more than that, I think the aspen trees are a picture of what the church should be. A bonded community serving each other and the world. The aspens offer a picture of unity few ever experience. And what if the church actually became like aspen trees? As I mentioned, aspens grow in community. A maple tree with all its beautiful colors is a solitary tree. They live alone with their own root system. And I suspect our experiences in life and church are more like the maple tree than the aspen tree. Yes, we read our Bibles and grow in our knowledge of God individually, but we have a harder time doing that collectively. We often don't feel unified, which begs the question, why? We live in a world that is so splintered and disunified and individualistic that it's actually crept into the church. All you have to do is take a glance at people's social media posts on Facebook and Twitter, and too many people seem eager to publicly humiliate and shame other people, even those they've never met. Think about how crazy this is. How often do you see people engaging in vitriolic arguments over politics or pushing the next cause on Facebook with people they rarely see and don't know? We often pursue arguments with people we have shallow relationships with, and it's no wonder those relationships don't go any deeper. In our modern information age, we live in communities as an individual or self-contained families. Connections through Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn easily multiply, but the deeply rooted links that form within a face-to-face community are often absent. Our communities tend to be more solitary and thin-surfaced. In other words, we often live like maple trees and not like aspens. Now let me take a moment and invite us to step back and ask the question, Do we live more like maple trees or like aspens? In his wonderful book, The Next Story, Life and Faith After the Digital Explosion, author Tim Challies suggests that we live in a world of what he terms networked individualism, and this is what he says. As individuals, we form our communities, and as individuals, we leave them. And so we are networked as individuals who are more concerned with our own interests than those of others. Without the traditional ties of geography or genetics, we have less reason to care for our communities, to nurture them, to be concerned with their long-term strength and success. In other words, we all want to act like we're part of a community without actually investing in it. We want the option of leaving if it doesn't benefit us and if we become uncomfortable. And that mindset has contributed to the breakdown of community in our world and in the church. But don't you see the benefit of community, church? Our 21st century individualistic American culture has blinded us to the biblical call for community. To be with others and grow with us or others is for our benefit because God made us for relationship. And when we do the hard work of discovering unity in the church, that is when we grow. And we, should, and we show a disunified world something different, unique, unique. And beautiful, and so our passage in Ephesians four one to sixteen is about unity and growth in the body of Christ. And so, as we explore our passage today, my hope and prayer is that we would show a watching world something that the aspens show. And when people look at us, just like they look at the aspens, may they say that is breathtaking. How does the church show unity and growth? To display unity and grow to maturity. Let's dive into God's word and let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for each person who's here today, Lord. I thank you for your glory. I thank you for your word. I thank you for worship. Father, I don't know how people have come in here this morning, but I do know that many people feel not connected in our world, that they feel alienated, Lord. I I pray this morning that you would cut to our hearts, that you would show us the unity that we have in you, and that you would challenge us to move deeper into the community of the church. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're just joining us today, we went quickly through the first three chapters of Ephesians. Paul spends the first half of his letter taking his readers deep into the theology of who we are in Christ, our identity. Now, the second half of the letter, chapters four to six, is all about how we live based on that identity in Christ. So let me offer three helpful words to show you the breakdown of Ephesians. Sit, walk, and stand. The first three chapters are all about sitting and learning who we are in Christ, Chapters 4 and 5 are about walking or living out our faith in everyday life. And chapter 6 is all about spiritual warfare or standing firm in the faith. The first half of the letter showed us the theological indicatives of the life of Christ. And the second half is all about the ethical imperatives. Or put another way, chapters 1 to 3 are about growing deep in our identity. Chapters 4 and 5 are about loving wide with our actions. And chapter 6 is about living tall in the face of opposition. So our passage in 4, 1 to 16 today shows us four movements. First, we have to learn the walk of unity. Then we find our foundation in the creed of unity. We have to discover the gifts for unity. And finally, we press into growth in unity. So I'm going to try to move quickly through the first two points, and we'll spend a majority of our time on points three and four. So the first point, the walk of unity. Unity. If we want to grow together as a church community, we have to learn this walk of unity. These opening verses are the hinge between Paul's theology and the first three chapters. And now he turns his attention to how they practically live this out. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The key word there is walk. As I mentioned, it's a key theme in chapters 4 and 5 walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Paul has gone to painstaking lengths in the first half of the letter to explain to his readers the calling and work of God's grace in their life. Now, calling is not something for the religious elite. It is something and the responsibility of every Christian. If you are a follower of Christ, you have been called. And Paul says we have to live out the consequences of this calling and his grace. Paul literally says here, walk worthily, which is a comprehensive expression that encompasses how people live in every aspect of their daily lives. Now, did you know that if you join the United States Marine Corps, there's a code of conduct that you're expected to follow? You are expected to walk worthily as a Marine. And if you do not walk in a worthy manner, you could be convicted of something called conduct unbecoming of a Marine and be dishonorably discharged from the Marine Corps. This phrase became popularly known in the 1990s with the movie A Few Good Men, where Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson couldn't handle the truth. Violating the code of conduct means that a Marine acted in an official capacity which was dishonoring or disgracing to the person as an officer. And to engage in such an act had ramifications. When you are a Marine, you are expected to walk in a manner worthy of being a Marine. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 1. That we should not be engaged in, engaged in conduct unbecoming a follower of Christ. Well, how do we do this? He offers four character descriptors in verse two. He says, Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be humble is to think of others first. To be gentle means we should keep ourselves restrained and under control. If you're gentle, you also need patience. And the word patience carries with it the idea of long suffering. In other words, you have a long fuse. If we want to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, it will take a long time for us to get angry. And the phrase bearing with one another in love quite literally means putting up with one another in love. I love that phrase, right? (laughs) There are some people that we instantly connect with and there are other people that we tolerate for the sake of love. How many of us have ever put up with someone for the sake of love? Yeah, I see that hand. Thank you. It's not easy. What Paul is saying is that if you want unity, if you want to grow, you need to have an attitude of love that tolerates the false and sometimes grating personality quirks of others in the church. So I think I know you know what I'm talking about, so I don't need to illustrate this. There's much more to be said, but Paul moves on to verse 3, and he says this. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And notice that Paul does not say, make every effort to create unity. He says, make every effort to keep unity. In other words, the unity is already theirs because they have the spirit living inside of them. Christ has torn down that dividing wall of hostility, made peace through the cross, and given the Holy Spirit as a deposit in our hearts. And so just as God himself lives in a perfect, peaceful community, so should the church because we have the power of the Trinity living inside of our hearts. What's Paul's point? He is saying that if we are Christians, if we are called, we need to live like it. Walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Something will be different. He's saying that our character matters. Why? Because our character is what produces unity. If we want to be unified as a church, we should ask these questions. Am I humble and gentle? Am I patient? Do we, are we able to put up with one another in love and keep the unity we have in the spirit? Because these elements are foundational to unity. Our character matters. And it flows from what we believe. So Paul returns to theology in the second section, appealing to it as the grounds for unity. We find our foundation in the creed of unity, in the creed of unity. Now, verses 4 to 6 were not a formal creed or belief statement in the early church. Paul is likely quoting an early church oral tradition that summarized what unified their belief. And here's what he writes in verse 4 to 6. He says, There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now don't miss this, church. Immediately after making an appeal to unity through their actions, Paul moves right into a confession of faith, which is abrupt, there's no transition. He says, make every effort to keep unity, and then he says, this is what we believe. It's kind of jarring for the reader. But don't miss it. Don't miss it. Because he appeals to the importance of what we believe as a foundation of unity. Notice that he says seven times. He uses the word one. There is one body. There's one spirit. There's one hope. There's one Lord. There's one faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all. Christians are one. The Jewish mind would have undoubtedly remembered the Old Testament Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is One. We have one God who unifies us together. In fact, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed that his followers would be what? One. The church is called to unity, and the foundation is what we believe. It's also a throwback to chapter 2, verse 14 to 18, where Jesus broke down that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles were without hope and without God in this world, but now they have one hope, in Christ's body, there is, Christ, there is one body that he reconciled both, God, both to God on the cross and created one new humanity. Now, that's another long list of terms, so I won't extensively go through it, but I do want to draw your attention to a few points. The phrase, one spirit, is significant for the Gentile readers in, this conver- in their conversion. There was common folk belief in the areas where they lived, um, uh, and, they, and they would have believed and sought the help of numerous spirits. And so you may remember that Ephesus was the magical capital of Asia Minor, and there were many spirits and demonic forces at play, which is why Paul pens an extended teaching on spiritual warfare in chapter 6. When the Gentiles became Christians, they had to renounce those spirits and confess their allegiance to the one spirit of the true God. It's a reminder to us also that when we we come to Christ, there's an aspect of our former beliefs and our former culture that we have to leave behind for the sake of, of following Christ. Now, secondly, one baptism probably refers to uh, the baptism of the Spirit at conversion, but also to water baptism, which was a common practice of the early church following a person's confession. Now, here at NBC, we believe in baptism by immersion, which is an outward sign of an inward faith which is an exciting time for a believer because they have the opportunity to publicly tell their story of what God has done and declare their allegiance to Christ. In fact, if you've never been baptized by immersion, we have an exciting opportunity coming up where you can do that. We have a few people interested, so we as pastors and leadership would love to walk with you through that if that is something you have never done. Please, it's one of my favorite things to do as a pastor. I know Pastor Dave loves to do that too. Talk with us. We'd love to help you in that process. But finally, I want to reiterate that what we believe matters. Paul's statement about one faith was a clarion call throughout the ancient world that it was against deviant teaching of the church. He's saying we don't have multiple faiths, we have one faith. Paul is saying that we as Christians have a set of convictions that unite us and bind us together. We've been adopted into one family with one father who is sovereign over all. So many people in our modern world focus on serving or practicality and ministry, which are not bad things, they're good things. But they must always flow from a theological vision for the church because doctrine matters. What we believe matters, and it binds us together. The point of these first two sections is this. We are not simply united by a common cause, but by a common creed. We are not simply united by a common cause, but by a common creed. And it is so important for the church to be unified in how they act and in what they believe. But how do we help one another grow in unity? Well, Paul turns his attention now to the discovery of the gifts for unity. After inserting this statement of faith, Paul starts a new section focusing on each, the new, each, every believer's role in the body of Christ for unity. Here's how he begins this section in verse 7. He says, but to each one of us, grace has been given, as Christ apportioned it. To each one of us, grace has been given. Amen. In both verse 7 and 16, Paul uses the phrase, each one of us. And it bookends this discussion about the role of building the body of Christ to maturity. Previously, Paul used the word grace as a gift of salvation, and part of that grace is receiving a spiritual gift. Look at how Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. Out of generosity of Christ, each of us is given his own gift. These gifts are given by grace from Christ. And notice that spiritual gifts, like our salvation, are not something that we earn through merit. They are something that Christ apportions to us. Now let me say this. Every Christian has a spiritual gift. If you confess Christ as Lord and you follow him, you are gifted. And the task for us is to discover what that gift is because each of us has a role to play in building up the body. And each of us, no matter how big or small, we have a role. Let me illustrate it this way. The three smallest bones in the human body are the middle ear ossicles, the malleus, incus, and stapes, more commonly known as the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup. The hammer is arranged so that one end is attached to the eardrum, while the other end forms a lever-like hinge with the anvil. The opposite end of the anvil is fused with the stirrup, so anvil and stirrup act as one bone. Now, through the middle ear ossicles, it works in obscurity, completely invisible to the outside world, but they are essential in our ability to hear. Without them, only 0.1% of the sound energy that hits the eardrum would be transferred to the inner ear. Literally, we wouldn't be able to hear. But because God has arranged these tiny parts in a way that maximizes leverage, they produce a sonic effect far beyond their diminutive size. Just as the human body has no insignificant parts, the body of Christ has no small or unimportant members. Amen. We all have a sphere of influence, however large or small, however visible or invisible, and we all have a vital role to play in God's plan of redeeming and restoring this world. We may be as well hidden as a bone in the inner ear, an internal organ, or a foot inside a shoe, but every person is absolutely essential The eternal purpose of god so what is your gift because jesus didn't save us for the sake of saving us he saved us to use us and that's what paul was getting at back in chapter 2 verse 10 where he said for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should what walk in them there's another word walk again And so don't you see that just like the ear needs all its parts to function, and here the body of Christ needs every part growing in unity to function. We have to have an Ephesians 2.10 mindset when it comes to serving the church and building up the body. Christ has good works for each of us to do. And the beautiful aspect of this truth is that just as God allowed the church to be ethnically diverse, he has given the church a diversity of gifts Everyone has something different to offer, and working together in unity, we live under the sovereign rule of Christ. Each is important for growth in the body, and we need to seek them diligently and wisely. Warren Wiersbe offers a helpful reminder. He says, gifts are not toys to play with. They are tools to build with. So let's ask ourselves, how is God calling us to help build the church? Now, after introducing that idea of spiritual gifts, Paul takes a right-hand turn, and he quotes from the Old Testament in Psalm 68. This is what he says. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. It's a quote from Psalm 68, 18, which brings up the image of God as a divine warrior who achieves a great victory over his enemies. He takes the bounty of the battle, ascends his holy mountain, and distributes gifts to his people from there. Now, I can't spend much time on this, but there are some interesting parallels between Psalm 68 and Ephesians I would encourage you to study. But Paul is clearly here drawing a parallel between the divine warrior and Christ. Look at how he continues. He says, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. You know, what Paul is saying is that Christ has vanquished his enemies. He's ascended to heaven and is distributing gifts to his people from there. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ defeated sin, hell, death, and Satan. He paid the price that we could never pay and earned salvation for us. And now Paul is giving a picture of Christ, the divine warrior who has fought for us and who stands victorious in heaven, ready for battle. Later in this letter, Paul will come back to that topic of spiritual warfare. In chapter 6, the enemies will be the powers and principalities in the spiritual realm whom Christ has victory over. And so chapter 4 is a precursor to chapter 6. As Christ offers gifts to the church, I have to think that what he is doing is preparing us for battle. We have an enemy who is seeking to kill, to steal, and destroy, and who wants to take down the church and all of its effectiveness. And why do you think, how do you think Satan does this? He keeps us from being affected by creating disunity in the church. There is nothing the devil loves more than to see Christians fighting each other in the church. And do you know why? Because that means we are not fighting him. And he has free reign to deceive the world and drag more people down with him. Satan wreaks havoc on the world when the church is not unified. Let me say that again. Satan wreaks havoc on the world when the church is not unified. But Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, offers gifts to his body to build the church and make us stronger. He equips us for battle. And he does this so that we can be ready to fight our enemy, so that we can bring heaven to earth, and so that we can grow in our ministry effectiveness. The church has to stand unified against the gates of hell. Every believer has a gift, and every believer has a role. You know, too often people treat the church as if they're riding on a cruise ship. On a cruise ship, what kind of questions do we ask? Do I like the music in the ballroom? Do I like the captain and his crew? Is the service good? Are my needs met? Is my cruise pleasant? And at the end of our ride, we fill out an evaluation and let the company know if we're going to sail with them again. Do you view the church like a cruise ship or like a battleship? Because if we are on a battleship, we ask these kinds of questions. Is the ship on a clear and noble mission? Does the captain submit to a higher authority? Are the crew members equipped to succeed when the fight comes? Because you see, on a battleship, every person of the crew has a post and has a role. They are not simply along for the ride. Do we treat the church like a cruise ship or like a battleship? Because, friends, everyone has a role. Everyone has a gift, and everyone is in an invisible war with an enemy who can strike at any time. Paul ends his section in verse 11 by talking about specific leaders he's given to the church, and this is what he says. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. In addition to giving spiritual gifts, Christ has specifically called leaders to build and lead the body as they submit to him. He mentions five specific leadership gifts here. The apostles, which in the biblical sense involve people who spent time with Jesus. Paul already told us in chapter 2 that the church was built on the foundation of the New Testament apostles. Prophets are people who proclaim the word of God powerfully and encourage the body of Christ. People who are gifted with, as evangelists, have a special ability to win people to Christ. And the final two roles are that of the teaching pastor people who have a special aptitude to explain the word of God. And these leaders are called to build the body and prepare them to go out and influence the world to the glory of God. In a sense, they prepare the church for battle. And when the church and all its gifted people are working together in unity, something powerful happens. Let me offer another illustration. In 1957, a graduate student at Columbia University named Gordon Gould had been working with pumping atoms to higher energy states so they would emit light. And so as Gould elaborated his ideas and speculated on all the things that this could be done, that could be done with a concentrated beam of light, he realized he was on to something. In his notebook, he confidently named the yet-to-be-invented device a laser or a light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. Try saying that three times fast. Nearly 60 years later, we are all seeing the impact of this remarkable tool. Lasers are used in eye surgeries, entertainment light shows, reading information on a disc, and even for military battle, just to name a couple things. And from a spiritual perspective, the laser represents the ultimate expression of the impact we can have in a world in need of light. If we are able to understand the stunning power of unity expressed in a laser beam and translate it into our lives, we would have a greater impact on those around us than ever before. When the church has a laser focus, when the body is working together in unity and using its gifts effectively, we will have greater impact. May we discover our gifts and may we become so synchronized that we emit the powerful light of Christ to this world. But here's the rub. This never happens easily. Nothing ever does. So the problem with spiritual gifts, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, is that people become so prideful about them. To achieve laser focus in using our gifts, we have one final aspect of unity. We have to do the hard work of growth in unity. Of growth in unity. Because it is this growth that produces maturity. And mature people are the ones who are the most unified. The most mature groups are the ones who are the most effective. You know this to be true. I mean, take sports for an example. If championships were won on the basis of sheer talent, there are many teams over the last century who would have taken home trophies, but they didn't. Some of us in this room may remember the great Super Bowl of 10 years ago, Super Bowl Forty Two. New York Giants, led by Eli Manning, entered the game prepared to face Tom Brady and the undefeated New England Patriots. It looked like the outcome was sure. The Patriots were better. They were going to win. But with some cunning and a miraculous catch, at the end of the game, one of the greatest sports upsets ever occurred. Have you ever asked, why doesn't the young, athletic, talented team win every time? Because inevitably, their immaturity will show. It's the topic of maturity that Paul turns to as he closes out this section. Verse 12, he continues from verse 11. These leaders were given to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be what? May be built up. Now take notice that verse 12 expounds on what these gifted leaders do. What are they called to do? They're called to equip people for works of service. And Paul is again recognizing that each believer is gifted for some ministry. But they need to be equipped. In other words, they need to be trained. The leaders just mentioned are the ones doing the equipping. And what are, what are they equipped to do? They're equipped to serve or minister to the body so that we may all be built up and strengthened. Now, I want to mention here that this is an interesting and important section for me because we've had some discussions between staff and elders about the use of the word volunteer. Volunteer. You may often hear us say around here that we need more volunteers for this or that ministry. But what we're actually saying is that we need people to use their gifts to build up the body. We need people to engage in works of service. And the problem with the word volunteer is that it's so kind of bland, you know. When someone volunteers, you can have the feeling of punching in a clock just to do your time. You're also going to say, oh, I don't want to do that. And with that mindset, we miss the bigger calling and the picture of calling that God has for us. So let me be clear. Each of us in this room has a gift, and we are called by God to use that for the building of the body. In a sense, all of us are ministers, if you know Christ. Too often, we think the paid people do all the ministry, and we get to sit back and enjoy. And don't get me wrong, we have a great staff, a gifted staff. But we also have a gifted congregation, I mean, folks, I know so many of you and how gifted you are. Don't be afraid to use those gifts to build up the body, to engage in works of service. Because I would suggest that what Paul is saying here is that if we are not engaging in works of service, we are not fulfilling part of our calling as believers because we need each other. And if we don't engage, the church suffers. What does Paul say in verse 13? He says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The purpose of engaging in works of service is to create unity in the faith, it's to help others grow, it's to help us all become more like Jesus. And when we achieve the fullness of Christ, that's maturity. And friends, I've met lots of people in their older years, but they're still infants in the faith. What we need is the body to help us grow because the most mature churches are the most unified. Look at what Paul goes on to say. Verse 14, he says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Some of you may know that my daughter is approaching her first birthday it's amazing how much she's grown in the last year. In fact, I've talked about how she's, she's starting to feed herself, crawl, stand. She's not far from walking and talking. But here is the thing I realize every day. And if you have a baby, you know. There's still a baby. <laughs> she needs to grow and mature. If she's acting like a one-year-old when she's 18, that's a problem. And some of you in here say, I can sympathize with that. <laughs> this is the same thing that Paul is saying for our spiritual life. We can't stay infants. Tim Keller offers three marks of what it looks like to be a spiritual baby. That's what he says. Babies are, number one, not discerning. Paul says that infants are tossed back and forth by the waves, meaning they don't know how to discern right from wrong. See, my daughter may have the ability to crawl, but she has no concept of what is dangerous. She doesn't know where the edge of the bed is or that she could easily fall off and break her neck. She doesn't know that something she puts in her mouth may be poisonous. I mean, have you ever watched a baby crawl around? I mean, I've mean, i had a lot of experience in this over the last year. They crawl around, and they, they, they find something, and it immediately goes in their mouth. You see, she's not discerning. We as parents need to keep her out of danger. And spiritual babies aren't discerning either. If we want to grow to maturity, we need to learn our Bible, we need to know theology, And that's why we need gifted teachers in the church to help us grow. Babies are also selfish. Babies are utterly the epitome of self-centered. When they cry, it's all about them. I love my daughter, but when she cries, it is never because daddy had a bad day. No, she cries because she is hungry and she needs me to attend to her. Babies are always thinking about themselves. And so if we want to grow to spiritual maturity, we need to place the needs of others above ourselves. If we want to know if we're growing to spiritual maturity, each year we should ask this question. Am I more concerned with the needs of others above my own more than I was last year? Rowland Croucher puts it this way. Maturity begins to grow when we can sense our concern for others outweighing our concern for ourselves. Finally, Spiritual babies are not steady. If we come to a church service and are convicted about something, but go home and don't change, that's a mark of being a spiritual baby. God calls all of us to grow. Our spiritual lives will always be up and down to an extent, but we have to learn that spiritual life is, what Eugene Peterson calls, a long obedience in the same direction. Yes, the spiritual life will have ups and downs, But the mature Christian remains steady because they remember their hope is in the object of their faith, Christ. Friends, we need the church, the body of Christ, to help us grow up. Now, how does the church help us? Well, Paul offers a contrast in verse 15. He says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. You see, speaking and living the truth of the gospel is how we combat the deceitful teachings that carry away the immature. The body of Christ, when functioning properly, always has the courage to speak the truth in love. Literally, this means truthing in love. It is only when this happens that we will grow and become mature, helping others become more Christ-like. But we often don't do this. We don't speak the truth in love because it's difficult, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable. Klein Snodgrass, love this guy's name, puts it this way. Great quote, though. Speaking the truth in love may require confrontation, which many of us seek to avoid out of concern for our own security. But in a fallen world, confrontation is necessary for love. Wow. Isn't that the truth? That the reason we often don't speak truth is selfish. I want to protect myself from the difficulty. But let me say this. What we don't, when we don't speak the truth in love, we are doing the body of Christ a disservice, and we are not helping the church grow. Yes, it's hard, but it's necessary. And in the end, it's what creates a mature unity, not a false one. One more word before we conclude. Most of us fall to one side of the spectrum when it comes to speaking the truth in love. Some of us are over here where we love to speak the truth but we don't do it in love. We love to be the whistleblower and tell it like it is but we give no consideration of how we speak to the other person and our words are harsh or we approach the conversation with the intention of winning and showing off our knowledge. We pride ourselves on being direct but our words are not saturated with love and tenderness. Friends, The purpose of speaking the truth in love is not to win, it is to be loving. It is out of concern for the other person to help them grow. And truth without love won't help anybody because they won't be able to hear you. May we be overly tender in our approach. Some of us are over here. We're all love, but no truth. We're the people who like to tiptoe around the issues because we don't want to hurt someone's feelings. Or we let people get away with everything and we never call them out on their sin. We are called to speak the truth in love. We need feedback to help us know who we truly are and it's only then that we grow. Friends, we can't be silent. Others need to hear from us. And if we don't speak, the church can't grow. We need to help build the church. And that's how Paul finishes here. Look at what he says, verse 16. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Remember that the goal is to grow each other into Christ's likeness. It is in him that all parts are held together and all things grow. To accomplish this, everyone has to do their part, which is that repeat from verse 7. Each one is given a gift and each one has a role. And if that doesn't happen, the church will not be built in love. How does the church display unity and grow to maturity? We do it together, we do it unified. Each person has a role to press into as we love each other well. You know, it's so easy to tear things down through complaints and selfishness, and I pray that we are not that. Let's build the body up in unity. And so as we finish, let's just ask this question. How can I build the body in unity? How can I build the body in unity? It means we have to discover our gift. It means we need to serve. And it means loving wine in the body of Christ because we are all in this together and everyone needs to do their part. Let's not be maple trees. Maple trees have that beautiful array of colors, but they live a solitary life. The church needs to be aspen trees, growing together, healing one another, helping each other. As our roots grow down deep, may our arms love wide to the glory of Christ, and this can only happen when we build the body up in unity. Now, I'm going to invite the band to come on stage as I close with a a poem that I think is appropriate. And the poem goes like this. The author says, I stood on the street of a busy town, watching men tearing a building down. With a ho ho heave ho and a lusty yell, they swung a beam and a sidewall fell. I asked the foreman of the crew, Are those men as skilled as those you'd hire if you'd wanted to build? Ah, no, no indeed. Just common laborers are all I need. I can tear down as much in a day or two as would take skilled men a year to do. And then I thought as I went my way, just which of these two roles am I trying to play? Have I walked life's road with care, measuring each deed with rule and square? Or am I one of those who roam the town content with the labor of tearing down? Let's not be about the business of tearing down. Let's follow God's call for building up the church in unity.